Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaka, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories of the past week. Our lead story today concerns the confusion concerning the booster shot. On one hand, we have the Biden administration saying one thing. Then we have the CDC and the FDA saying something else. And then we have the WHO saying something completely different concerning a booster shot. And so then the question is, where does science belong in this debate, some of which is darn right political? And then let's talk about outer space. For the first time in history, we had an all-civilian crew aboard a rocket ship that sailed into outer space for three days, making history in the process. And some people are saying, are we entering a new era in the exploration of outer space? Costs are dropping, rockets are becoming reusable, and a public-private cooperation is developing, competition is emerging, and that's driving down the cost of space travel. Other people say, bah, humbug. We're talking about a plaything for billionaires. I mean, how much does it cost to get a seat on one of these rockets into outer space? We're talking about millions of dollars just for one seat to ride up into outer space. So we'll talk about the pros and cons of space tourism. And then we'll say a few things about a breakthrough concerning sickle cell anemia and genetic diseases. There are roughly 5,000 diseases of our genes, many of them ancient, some of them historic, like hemophilia, which afflicted the royal families of Europe. In the United States, we have the fact that we have sickle cell anemia, which afflicts African Americans and other minorities. In fact, one out of every 365 African Americans are afflicted with this painful disease, which is often fatal. But now there's hope. Gene therapy is finally beginning to live up to some of the early hype. And we'll talk about the pros and cons of whether or not one day we may be able to cure genetic diseases, which at the present time are totally incurable. Things like sickle cell anemia, which afflicts African-Americans, for example, or Tay-Sachs, which affects Jewish people, cystic fibrosis, which affects Northern Europeans. And there's hope because there's a new technology called CRISPR technology, which is forcing us to rewrite what we know about genetic engineering. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. There seems to be, well, a dogfight emerging between the CDC, the FDA, the Biden administration, and the WHO concerning the efficiency of booster shots. Well, first of all, all of us know that the flu virus mutates. That's why every winter or so, we have to have a new vaccine, a booster shot, because of the fact that the flu virus mutates. In fact, all life forms mutate. DNA and RNA, when they reproduce themselves, mistakes occur. And as a consequence, we have to keep track 
of how the genetic profile of these diseases migrate with time. And sure enough, COVID-19 is also mutating. The latest Delta variety is much more infectious than the Alpha variety, which in turn is more infectious than the original virus, which emerged about two years ago. So we have to always be one step ahead of the game. But why is it that the FDA, the CDC, the Biden administration, and the WHO could all be saying something different? Well, a consensus is gradually emerging, but hey, get used to it. This is how science is done. You see, in physics, you can get a definite yes or no. If you jump off a building, you're going to fall down. You're not going to fall up. You fall down. No question about it. So in physics, we can make definite statements. But you see, medicine is different. Medicine involves a complex interplay of billions of cells interacting with billions of chemicals. And so we can only make average statements. So we want things definitive, just like we can make definitive statements about physics. But no, you can't do that in biology. And so what's at stake, for example, is the recent studies done on Israel. Israel has a very high percent of its population being vaccinated. And it turns out that, yes, if you get the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, then we're talking about efficiency is of 94 to 95 percent. But that number begins to drop with time. After about six months or so, the efficiency drops to about 85 percent. And that's where the first disagreement comes in. Some people say, well, let's get that booster shot going and boost that 85% figure back up to 95%. Other people are saying, well, look at the world profile. There are people in third world countries that can't afford some of these fancy vaccines. Shouldn't they be put on a priority? And then there are people who are saying, well, what about people over 65 and people under 65? What about children? They're left out of the mix. And so we have all these different kinds of constituencies. But the question is, where is the science involved? Well, as I said, a slow consensus is developing. And it constantly changes, of course, because that's the nature of medicine. The consensus is their first priority probably should go to people who are over 65, who have underlying conditions, because they are the most vulnerable to the Delta virus. And then as time goes by, we can start to vaccinate more and more people. And eventually we want to hit herd immunity. Herd immunity is roughly when approximately 70 to 80% of a population is fully vaccinated. At that point, there's no wiggle room for the virus to infect other people. Of course, it's still infectious. There's still 20% of the population or so that's still vulnerable. But in the main, it becomes more and more difficult for the virus to find the next generation of people to infect. And at a certain point, you can begin to put the epidemic under control. In fact, that's what happened to the uh, virus of 1918, the Spanish flu virus, which killed more people than World War I, never really went away. It's still around, but it simply mutated to the point where it doesn't cause this tremendous pandemic. And so the hope is, once we hit herd immunity, the virus will either disappear of its own, or it will mutate to a more, uh, to a less virulent variety 
in order to survive. But anyway, the point I'm raising is it's natural that we're going to have disagreements because the data is not definitive. Different people react different ways. All we can say is on average, the, the vast majority of people can benefit from the vaccination, but it has to be done in a regular sequence, starting with people with underlying conditions, the elderly, and then working our way down. It's not easy. It's going to be a lot of rough and tumble, but hey, that's the way science is done. And now let's take a look about outer space. It seems that after many decades of ho-hum, ho-hum, not much happening in outer space, we have renewed vigor, interest, new visions, new money, new ideas in the space program. You see, if you think about it, the first era of space travel was back in the 60s and 70s. There was a vision that we had. The vision was beat the Russians, beat the Russians. Well, what happened? We beat the Russians. As a consequence, the wind went out of the sails of the space program. It was very costly. And as a consequence, people say, well, it's just not worth the effort to spend so much of our precious resources on the space program. So the manned space program pretty much collapsed. Now we're entering the second era, the second era where there's new energy, new money, new visions, new cash come in in the picture. First of all, rockets are now reusable and that reduces the cost tremendously. It costs about $10,000 to put a pound of anything into near-Earth orbit around the Earth. By comparison, that's your weight in gold. Think of your body made out of solid gold. That's what it costs to put you into outer space. And so, naturally, only billionaires can really afford to be the first generation of civilians to go into outer space. So now let's take a look at the evolution of the railroads and the evolution of the airplane. When they were first marketed, they were used mainly for industrial purposes, the shipping of freight, heavy equipment, troops, weapons. That's the main use for railroads and airplanes when they were first introduced. Eventually, costs began to drop and then wealthy individuals began to realize, hey, this is a very fast, convenient way to go from point A to point B. And all of a sudden, we had the birth of luxury liners catering to wealthy individuals who could afford the ticket. Third, well, now we're in the third era of air travel and rail travel, where mom and dad can buy a ticket to get on an airplane. The same thing now for the space program. In the first era, it was a competition uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union as to who goes to the moon first. We're now entering the beginning of the second era, where, yes, let's face it, this is a plaything of the rich. The criticisms are valid. This is a plaything for the rich, but hey, that's the way it was with the railroads. That's the way it was with the airplanes. It costs a lot of money to go into outer space. Uh, for example, to get on the Virgin Galactic uh, flight, it costs a minimum of $250,000 per passenger. 
to get on the Soyuz spacecraft to go all the way up to the International Space Station. The Russians are charging, well, we don't know the exact number, but it's about $30 million per seat to go up on the Soyuz space capsule. In fact, there was a Microsoft billionaire who years ago took a ride on the Russian uh, rocket to the International Space Station. I had him on radio and I asked him, how much did you pay for that seat? I mean, the press was saying maybe 20 million. And he said that, well, quite frankly, uh, he signed a declaration stating that he's not going to reveal how much it costs. But, well, yeah, 20 million, that's in the ballpark. Well, that was years ago. Now we're talking about 200 million to get a ride into outer space. And fortunately, one of the passengers on this recent voyage into outer space was a billionaire. Yes, for three days, for three days, four civilians made history this past weekend by going up on SpaceX, not to the space station. No, they went beyond the space station. They went beyond the Hubble Space Telescope. They were in deep space. Now, this past uh, summer, when Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin had not one but two missions to the edge of space, there was some debate. Some people are saying, well, Virgin Galactic not, did not really go beyond the atmosphere of the Earth. It was still at the edge, the edge of the atmosphere. Well, there's no quibbling about this recent SpaceX mission. It went 360 miles above the surface of the Earth, breaking records for an all-civilian spacecraft. And if you compare this rocket with the rocket this past summer, this past summer we had rockets that simply went up and came back down again. They benefited from weightlessness for just a few minutes. They just got a glimpse of the edge of space. This SpaceX rocket is different. It's a real rocket. It went six times faster than the space tourist rockets this past summer. Six times faster, all the way up to 18,000 miles per hour orbiting velocity. And it went seven times higher, not just 50 miles above the surface of the Earth, but 360 miles above the surface of the Earth. So in other words, history is in the making. And then the question is, so what? What did we learn from all of this? Well, the bottom line, the cynic could say that this is a plaything for the rich. And well, as I said, yeah, that's the way it was for the railroads. That's the way it was for the airliners in their infancy. But costs are going to drop. Rockets are reusable. We have new imagination, new energy, new vigor. Private enterprise is now... Uh, right up there with the federal government in terms of initiating new kinds of technologies that will reduce the cost even further. $10,000 per pound put to put anything at near-Earth orbit. People are saying that could go down by a factor of two to five once rockets become fully reusable. And I once had Carl Sagan on exploration, and I asked him that same question. Do we really need to go into outer space? And his answer, I paraphrase, his answer was basically that, well, the dinosaurs didn't have a space program. That's why they're not here today. They got wiped off the face of the earth. His point was that we live in the middle of a shooting gallery. 
We like to think that Mother Earth is quiet, stable, stationary, nurturing. But no, if you take a look at the long-term history of the Earth, you realize that it's violent. Many different kinds of life forms have risen and fallen because of rapid changes in the Earth's uh, geography and topology when you look on a scale of billions of years. And so that's why there are no dinosaurs here today. And he wanted basically a plan B, an escape policy, not necessarily to move all humans to Mars. No, that costs too much. That wouldn't be right. But to have a settlement in outer space so that we could survive if there was something catastrophic that happened here on the planet Earth. And so, yeah, in the short term, we are entering the second phase of space exploration. The second phase is largely led by wealthy individuals who can afford to pay the sticker price for these rocket ships. But eventually, costs are going to keep on dropping. And with that, it means that the Earth is going to be, quote, smaller than before. It means that people will interact with other peoples and get to know their hopes and dreams. You know, in the old days, during the Middle Ages, people spent their whole life maybe within 20 miles of where they were born. And when it was time to go to warfare, they didn't have a clue as to who they were going to kill in the next war. Now is different. The earth is smaller now. You know who's on the other side of the barricades. And so it's going to be much more difficult to create wars. We will still have wars, of course. But it'd be more difficult to have wars because in the future, people will interact with other people via the internet, via space travel, via reduced cost of transportation. And hopefully, that means that we won't see other peoples as the enemy. Well, let me say a few things about genetic diseases and sickle cell anemia. We forget the fact that there are diseases of our genes lurking around for thousands of years that are incurable. Diseases that actually change the course of history. Now, in the United States, African Americans have to worry about sickle cell anemia. One out of every 365 African Americans have it. It's a horrible disease. It'll eventually kill you if it's out of control. And it's very painful. It is a disease where the blood cells, instead of being smooth and disc-shaped, are sickle-shaped. And as a consequence, they don't flow through the body's vascular system very well, creates clotting problems, and is very painful as a consequence. And you're lucky if you live to be in the, 19, in the 40s in terms of life expectancy if you have it. Now, if two people... If two people are carriers of sickle cell anemia, but are free of the disease, but if there are carriers of the, of the disease, then the probability is one in four that your children will also come down with this sickle cell anemia. And it's a disease that we have to realize is part of a family of genetic diseases. If you are Jewish, you have to worry about Tay-Sachs. If you are from Northern Europe, you have to worry about cystic fibrosis. 5,000 genetic diseases have been cataloged. Many of them have actually influenced world history as a consequence. Think of hemophilia. 
Hemophilia is sometimes called the royal disease. Uh, Queen Victoria apparently was a carrier of the hemophilia gene, and she spread that gene throughout the royal halls of Europe with her progeny. One of them wound up as the son of Tsar Nicholas II. As a consequence of that, charlatans and faith healers could enter the royal palace claiming that they could cure hemophilia, which causes uncontrolled bleeding. One of them was a rascal called Rasputin. Rasputin wormed his way into the royal circles in Tsarist Russia. And many historians think that he delayed reforms that were vitally needed. Reform is because Europe was entering the Industrial Age and Russia was still so backward. As a consequence, some people think that because of the delayed reforms in Russia caused by Rasputin, it meant that the Russian Revolution gained steam and eventually toppled Tsar Nicholas II, and that created the Communist Revolution. Well, that revolution, caused in part by hemophilia, also affected, in some sense, the United States. You see, the United States, before it was formed, had a war against England. England was ruled by King George, otherwise known as the Mad King. Yes, King George was a certified lunatic, and many reforms were not carried out as a consequence. He suffered from a genetic disease, and as a consequence, many people think he created taxation without representation, the disenfranchisement of the colonies leading to the American Revolution of 1776. So we're talking about the fact that many times world history has been altered because the kings and queens of Europe practice incestuous relations with each other, which made genetic diseases much more common. In fact, if you look at ancient Egyptian history, going back thousands of years, you realize that individuals like King Tut were riddled riddled with all sorts of genetic diseases when we analyzed their mummies and analyzed their remains. They didn't know that this intense inbreeding that they used to keep royalty within, within their family circle can create all these horrible genetic diseases which weakened, weakened the, the monarchy, eventually leading to its collapse. Well, what do we do about it now? Well, in the short term, not much. Yes, there are things you can do to reduce the pain and suffering of these diseases, but in the main, they are diseases of our genes. To really cure them, you have to change our genes. Now there's hope. First of all, around 20 years ago, there was a lot of hype around genetic engineering. We thought we would be able to fix broken genes just like that, but it turned out to be a lot harder than we previously thought. You see, when the Human Genome Project was worked out when uh, President Bill Clinton was still president, it turned out that all we got was a gigantic dictionary with all these words with no definitions. We had a listing of all the genes in the human body. That was a milestone, but we didn't know what they did. And as a consequence, we were running blind and so the human genome was in some sense oversold when it was first mapped out. We had a roadmap, 
with just the names of these places without the foggiest idea of what these things did. So now we're beginning to slowly figure that out. And there's a new technology now, a new technology which is changing the landscape, which is causing a tremendous amount of interest. And that is CRISPR technology, which recently won the Nobel Prize for those individuals who were able to discover it. First of all, we know that ordinary bacteria have defenses against viruses. Yes, even bacteria have defenses against other bacteria. It turns out that germs have defenses against viruses. And scientists said, well, the wheel has already been invented. Nature has already created defense mechanisms against viruses. Why not copy? Why not copy the mechanisms that that bacteria already use against viruses. Such a simple idea, right? The wheel's been invented. Why not simply copy the wheel that Mother Nature's already created? And that began CRISPR technology. Now, in some sense, we can change genes almost like uh, word processing. Of course, word processing is still a lot easier, but it's likened to that. Some people are saying that just like you can type and create new words and use that with the word processor to insert these words into an edited draft, something similar is now happening with our genes. Now, let's not get our hopes up too soon. This is still not yet a proven technology. Gene therapy is in its infancy. In fact, there are only something like two or three diseases that can be reliably cured using this technology. We're a long ways from being able to affect the genes that affect African Americans and Jewish people and Northern Europeans. We're not there yet. But the point is clinical trials. Clinical trials are now in play, which may give us a handle on some of these diseases. And just remember that some of these diseases are part of our culture. Huntington's disease is a horrible disease that causes flailing of the body. You go into convulsions and you think that you're being possessed by a demon or something. Some historians have claimed that maybe that was the origin of the Salem witch trials. Some historians have identified one of the people accused of being a witch as actually being afflicted with Huntington's disease, in which case maybe that is the origin of the famous Salem witch trials. Well, it turns out that Woody Guthrie, the guy who's saying, this land is your land, this land is my land, that Woody Guthrie also had Huntington's disease, this horrible disease that makes you start to flail about. And his son also, we think, had, had the sickle cell anemia, but it's not certain. In fact, uh, Arlo Guthrie was asked, do you want to be tested? to see whether or not you inherited that gene from your father. And he said, no, he'd rather not know. Personally, I think that it's better to know because now we have hope on the horizon. Now you know that if you do have certain forms of genetic diseases, it may be possible, just possible to cure some of them using CRISPR technology. So an exploration will give you updates as to progress. And again, I don't want to get people's hopes up too high. We do not yet have a cure for these genetic diseases. 
However, CRISPR technology is now uh, hot on the trail of finding a cure for these diseases. Many clinical trials are now in progress. And it means that some of the diseases that have afflicted your ancestors for thousands of years may one day be cured. That's the hope. Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of exploration. In the second part of exploration, we're going to bring on an astronaut to tell us about what it's like to be in outer space. And to find out more about this program, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. On Facebook, we have now about 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. So stay tuned now for the next half of Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. In the second half of exploration, we're going to go back a bit to see at what point the space program diverged. You see, it was under former President Barack Obama's tenure that a decision was made to go private. In other words, the space program was largely funded as a government project. The mission was beat the Russians, beat the Russians. Well, we beat the Russians. And the next step would be the commercialization of outer space. And so during the former President Barack Obama's tenure, the Augustine Report came out, very controversial, about the future of the space program. Would it be strictly a government-funded organization, or would it be partly private-funded as well? Well, we know what the benefits of a private enterprise would be. Costs would drop. Things would be on a much faster pace. And we see the benefits of it with today's program. But we have to realize that it all started when former President Barack Obama and the Augustine Report said there has to be a new direction for the space program. It's simply too expensive to invest government funds on a program that could be done more efficiently with private enterprise. And now the culmination of that, of course, is the fact that our astronauts are now civilians. Just this past weekend, four brave civilians and one billionaire went into outer space for three days, setting a record for an all-civilian spacecraft, ushering in a new era in space tourism. And so once again, we're going to rebroadcast the previous interview with Dr. Jeffrey Hoffman. Not only is he a professor at MIT, he's also a former astronaut and was on one of those historic missions to repair the Hubble Space Telescope. And today, we're going to rerun some of the vital debate that went on 
toward President Barack Obama's tenure when he decided to give a new direction to the space program to make it not just a government-funded entity, but a public-private project, using the best of the government and the best of private enterprise to explore outer space. Well, I grew up in uh, the New York area, and my parents always used to take me to lots of cultural activities, you know, concerts, museums, and the like, including the Hayden Planetarium. And what it was that somehow clicked with me and astronomy and stars, planets, and the like, it's hard to say, but uh, they recognized it. My father especially had sort of been interested in astronomy, so he encouraged my interest, and that was in the 1950s, which was just what we would call the dawn of the space age. It was before the launch of Sputnik, but there was lots on television, in in magazines, uh, newspapers about the coming space age, and I found it very exciting. You know, I learned about rockets and satellites, and and of course the idea of human space flights. Of course, at the time there was no such thing as an astronaut except for Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon, but I guess my interest goes all the way back to when I was a little kid. Okay, so let's say a kid today wants to become an astronaut. What do you do? Do you write to NASA? You take courses in becoming an astronaut. What are the steps you take to become an astronaut? Well, if you're uh, a youngster still in school, Really, the, the, the best thing to do is uh, to make sure that you get a good technical education, which means, you know, your courses in science and math and technology and, and engineering, and uh, that's what will prepare you. Once you get to the point where you've uh, completed your education, you have some professional experience behind you, yeah, it's an application process. Um, NASA will, on demand, send you a an application, which you will fill out, uh, you know, astronauts, believe it or not, are civil servants. So it's it's a civil servant's job application that you fill out. But, you know, there's certain uh, places where they ask for special qualifications for this job. And that, of course, is the critical thing, because astronauts uh, have a lot of different responsibilities. Um, and there is a certain amount of specialization. So, um a lot of astronauts have gotten into the program through the military by becoming uh, test pilots, something, you know, high-performance jet aviation, something you can really only do in the military. That was not the way I got in. I was a scientist working as a as a high-energy astronomer doing X-ray astronomy and sending satellites, uh, to satellite-borne telescopes up into space. And um, when NASA asked for a new group of astronauts to fly on the space shuttle. This was back in the late 70s when they were getting ready to start flying the shuttle. And they said, we don't just need pilots. We want uh, scientists and engineers as well. Uh, I applied and, and I was accepted. And that's what's been going on ever since. So in principle, somebody could go to the website of NASA, nasa.gov, and <laughs> fill out an application and apply pretty much online. Is that what you're saying? It is, a, it is an online application. However, it's not uh, an open application. NASA periodically calls for uh, astronaut applications as part of a selection process. In fact, we just recently finished a selection process and took, I think, uh, eight new astronauts. So I suspect there's not going to be another selection for a couple of years. 
Okay, and how many hours did you spend in outer space with the space shuttle? Well, um, all of my flights were on the shuttle. I've made five trips into space on the shuttle uh, for a total of about 50 days in space. And what are some of the problems that you face? We, we hear about weightlessness and nausea, but uh, what are the other kinds of uh, problems that astronauts face in space? Well, the most serious problem is to accomplish your mission. I mean, that's, that's why you're going there in the first place. For instance, um, my, my most significant mission, I guess, would be, would be the uh, initial rescue and repair mission to the Hubble Space Telescope back in 1993. Um, I had already had three space flights. I knew that I wasn't bothered by space sickness. Uh, I knew my way around. But the challenge of actually fixing Hubble was uh, was severe, and in many ways the future of NASA's human spaceflight program was depending on that. So, so there was a lot of pressure on us. Um, there are a lot of physical challenges in spaceflight. The transition from our normal Earth gravity environment to... A weightless environment produces a lot of stress. Uh, you mentioned space motion sickness. That's one problem. Um, your your whole um, muscular system has to be exercised much more than on the ground because being in weightlessness is a little bit like lying in bed. Uh, you don't get much exercise. Now, I have to say, on your average shuttle flight, which only lasts two weeks or so, these things are not so critical. I mean, you can lie in bed for two weeks and then get up and, and you might be a little bit stiff, but you're not going to have deteriorated that much. When people go up to the space station for six months at a time, it's a lot more serious. They have to spend two to three hours every day in very serious exercise, cardiovascular, upper body, resistive stress exercises. If they don't do that, uh, their musculoskeletal systems are going to deteriorate. We know that um, people also lose calcium from their bones. We still don't have a long-term solution to that, although there are some promising research leads. So yeah, and, and I could go on and on. I mean, there's, there's uh, I, I, I lecture for, for many hours about the effects of space on the human body, but you know, basically, it is a stressful situation, and you need to keep yourself healthy enough so that when you come back to Earth, you will be able to function. Okay, and I also understand that the Russian astronauts spending up to a year in outer space, when they come down, uh, they're barely able to, to walk. They can almost crawl, they crawl, basically, when they come back there's, from space. There's a space huge here. variability. Uh, you're absolutely right. There have been uh, people, even after six months, who have not been able to stand up and walk on their own. It's a, through a combination of muscular weakness, uh, but also the um, disorientation of your balance system, you know, your inner ear, which, which helps you keep your balance, has seriously affected in weightlessness. Now, all, you, you get this ability back, but the longer you've been in space, the longer it takes to recover from it. Okay. Now, a lot of people have been talking about the Augustine Report, which says that, well, there's not enough money to sustain a vigorous and healthy manned space program to the moon and to Mars. They talk about more modest uh, goals, like perhaps 
landing on an asteroid or perhaps the moons of Mars. First of all, what are your overall thoughts about the Augustine Report, and what are your thoughts about perhaps landing on an asteroid or the moons of Mars? Well, first of all, we ought to be clear that you don't actually land on an asteroid because an asteroid doesn't have enough gravity to really constitute landing on it in the way that you would land on the moon, which mm -hmm. has about one-sixth of the Earth's gravity. You really sort of fly up and dock with an asteroid like you would dock with another spacecraft in Earth orbit. But having said that, um, we have to go back a step or two. You know, we've been flying the shuttle for nearly 30 years now in Earth orbit. We had an incredible capability for space exploration in the Apollo program. I mean, the Saturn V rocket was was unbelievably capable. We had a whole set of hardware which allowed us to get to the moon, and we could have used that to do many other things beyond Earth orbit, but we basically threw it all away. There were political decisions made um, also tied into the economics and the Vietnam War and so on, what won't go into past history. But we basically had this incredible capability to do these things in space, and we've lost it. Um, the shuttle has, has been an extremely capable vehicle. Uh, it's far from perfect. It's uh, not nearly as, uh, as, as uh, economical to fly as people had hoped, nor can we fly it as frequently. And, of course, it's not as safe as we would like it to be. But nevertheless, it's allowed us to do some absolutely extraordinary things in space, but only in low Earth orbit. This has sort of culminated these last 30 years with the construction of the International Space Station, which is now essentially complete. There's a few more flights to bring up spare parts and the like, but that's been a, an extraordinary undertaking on an international level. But... After the loss of the Space Shuttle Columbia in 2003, there was a um, commission which was studying the accident, and they pointed out that, you know, what what is the motivating factor for human spaceflight that when when it's supported by the government? Why should the government be supporting astronauts in space? And ultimately. The answer they came up with, which I agree with, is exploration. We're pushing the boundary. We are expanding the realm of humanity, and, and the U.S. Um, should maintain world leadership in, in this endeavor. Well, um, that led to the Bush administration in 2004 uh, establishing what they called the new vision for space exploration, where we would, in fact, retire the space shuttle, uh, build a new launch system, go back to the moon, eventually go on to explore Mars, which everybody kind of agrees is the ultimate goal of human exploration in space, at least that we can imagine, given, given the technology which is available to us. And he promised NASA... Uh, a reasonable increase in their budget to support that. So NASA started on a program to build these new rockets and design the equipment you need to land on the moon and, and work there and so on and so forth. But the money was never forthcoming. And so the program has been slipping and slipping. And I think the Augustine Commission performed a very uh, necessary service by essentially calling... Uh, calling the game and saying, look, 
um, at the at the budget level that NASA currently has, it can't do this exploration program. The very best that we could do would be to to build this uh, Ares One rocket, which which only will take us to low Earth orbit. Um, and uh, even at the rate we're going, it won't be ready until the middle of the next decade. By which time, it was not even clear whether the space station would would still be in operation because NASA had not included continued space station operations after 2016. Well, the commission said, look, that doesn't make sense. I mean, this is a huge international undertaking. It's just getting started to do its useful work. It just doesn't make sense to, to bring it down after only a few years. So it's probably going to be kept in orbit at least till the end of the next decade, and who knows what beyond. But that's that's another several billion dollars a year out of NASA's budget, which wasn't even accounted for. So what they basically said was, at NASA's current budget level, there's not going to be human space exploration beyond Earth orbit. If you want to do it, you got to put a little money into the pot, a few billion dollars a year. This is the challenge to the Obama administration. We we have yet to find out how they're going to react. If you do that, you have various options. Um, the problem with the original plan of going directly to the moon is we need to build a heavy lift launch vehicle, sort of the modern equivalent of the Saturn V. That's a requisite no matter what we do beyond the Earth. In order to go to the moon, soon, the way we did in Apollo, you have to build the lunar lander and, and all the other lunar hardware at the same time that you're building this heavy lift launch vehicle. Again, we can't afford it. So if we can only afford to build one new vehicle at a time, let's build the heavy lift launch vehicle first, and then after we've gone through the development costs, we can start working on the lunar lander and the other lunar hardware we need. But while that's being built, let's use this heavy launcher to take people beyond Earth orbit and get some experience with long spaceflight outside the protection of the Earth's magnetic field. And that's where the ideas have come from of visiting an asteroid or going to one of the moons of Mars or various other things that could possibly be done. So all of these are various options, but they all require a modest increase in NASA's budget. Without that increase, we're just going to go back and forth to the space station. Okay, so let's take them one at a time, okay? First of all, to go to an asteroid, what's the advantage? And I guess you can save on fuel because you don't have to overcome the gravity of the asteroid, right? Exactly, so and that, that that's the whole point. In, in order to land on a large body, relatively large body like the moon, you need to build a special lander. And it's even more difficult to land on Mars because you need to build a very large heat shield to protect you coming through the Mars atmosphere. Um, but an, uh, the moons of Mars are, are much smaller than, than the moon, and asteroids are even smaller. They, they have a very low gravity, and, and you can just sort of fly up and, and dock with them without any additional hardware. And there's great interest in, uh, we call them asteroids, they're actually, we should call them near-Earth objects. The asteroids are primarily in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, but 
periodically some of them come and, and actually come pretty near the Earth. There's a lot of interest in these, both scientifically, the idea that we'd like to, to know much more precisely what they're made of, but also from the point of uh, protecting our planet against a potential impact. We'd like to find out, uh, you know, how, how could you attach something to uh, a near-Earth object? Some of these things we believe may be solid. Others might be just rubble piles sort of hanging together by very weak gravity and, and surface uh, chemistry. So um, there's a lot of interesting things to be learned. And and a human mission to a near-Earth object in one mission could learn far more than than uh, a, a series of relatively small robotic missions, although we certainly should be sending robotic missions, I think, uh, as well. Now, the Bush administration had hoped that by 2020 we'd go back to the moon with a manned mission. That's going to be pushed back who knows when. Well, the but... Augustine Commission's conclusion was that this was possible, that the the program that NASA originally set out on could have been done had it been funded. But it wasn't funded, and that's why it's not going to happen on that time scale. Okay. But now let's look into the future past 2020. If we do get the funding and if we do go back to the moon, some people want a permanent presence on the moon. That is a permanent moon base. However, then there are other problems, for example, radiation and shielding. Some people think we should go underground, perhaps into a uh, an old volcano vent and create a, a moon base under the soil. So what are the problems that astronauts would face in the farther future if they have a permanent base on the moon? Well, um, the problem of radiation uh, is not limited to, to a permanent base on the moon. If you're if you're flying out to Mars uh, or going to visit a near-Earth object or to one of the Lagrangian points to service a, a satellite, you're, anytime you go outside the Earth's magnetic field, you're subjected to the full force of both the galactic cosmic radiation and anything that our own sun uh, happens to hurl at us if they have a uh, solar flare, which you know we call them coronal mass ejections. Um, the solar radiation is primarily protons at modest energies. It is possible to shield against them. You do need special shielding, and we've uh, designed um, essentially water tanks. You, you know, on any space mission, whether you're on the lunar surface or, or in free space, you need a rather large water supply. And if you package it in such a way that it forms a shield around you and you can sort of get into it if you have a solar flare and, you know, stay in there for a day or two, however long you need until the radiation level goes down, we think that that would protect you against all but the very largest solar flares. Galactic cosmic rays are much higher energy, and in addition to protons, you get a significant number of, uh, of, of, of uh, heavier nuclei. We can't shield against those with current technology of, that, that we can actually, I mean, you need so much lead surrounding you that, that we'd never get off the ground. However, um, there are a lot of um, advances being made in the study of radiation protection. Um, let's remember that, that uh, 
from a solar flare, you could get acute radiation poisoning and die on the spot. And so you've got to shield yourself if you have a big solar flare. Galactic cosmic radiation is it's basically a low dose, but you receive it over a long period of time, and it gradually builds up. Um, the long-term problem with that is that it damages your cells and eventually can lead to an increased probability of developing cancer, and that's what we're worried about. However, it's also, you know, our ability to detect cancer early and to treat it is constantly improving, and, and so it could well be that, that this will turn out not to be uh, an insurmountable problem. There's also uh, drugs being developed which look like they increase our uh, ability to resist radiation damage because our body does have the ability to repair DNA after it's damaged, and there may be pharmaceuticals that can improve that process. So I think in the long run, we, we will solve that problem. We certainly have to. If we're serious about space exploration, we've got to be able to deal with, with the radiation. Now, science fiction writers would have us believe that the moon has lots of commercial and military value. We'll mine the moon and we'll have military bases on the moon. But isn't the moon rather impractical? I mean, economically speaking, I, it would cost too much money to bring minerals back from the moon. We You're absolutely the right. Uh, right now, given the cost of, of space transportation, if the moon were made of solid gold, it would not pay to go and mine it. So I think the the idea of mining the moon or any other celestial body to bring the material back to Earth at the moment is impractical. On the other hand, if you want to go live on another uh, celestial body like the moon or Mars, being able to live off the land and actually use the material that's there. We know that, uh, you know, Mars is the best example, and I, and I think it's the, one of the reasons why it's our ultimate goal is because more than any other place in the solar system, it's a place where we think we can actually go and live. I mean, it has hydrocarbons, it has uh, oxygen, it has ample supplies of water, so with all those things, if you just have enough energy to process them, you can basically live. And, uh, and that's very exciting, the idea that, that humanity could actually establish a beachhead on another world and, and actually live there. Whether or not we want to do that on the moon, you'll get people expressing a whole spectrum of views. My, my own feeling is that we ought to go and explore all the different places on the moon get to know what's there, and then we can make a decision. Is it is it useful to put a permanent scientific base on the moon? And if so, where should that base be? I'd like to explore the entire moon before we make that decision. Okay, and then moving on to Mars. It only took about three days to go to the moon. A moon mission would only last uh, a week or so. However, a mission to Mars would take uh, minimum, what, six months to go to Mars? And... Well, with our current Propulsion technology, that's true, and I think um, one, one thing that uh, NASA ought to be investing in is, and it's not just NASA because it's actually tied in with uh, fusion power, is uh, forms of advanced plasma propulsion. NASA is supporting some work in that, and, and it's potentially very exciting. Um, if you have sufficient electrical power to run a uh, plasma generator, 
then you leak the plasma out the back of, of the engine at very, very high velocities, you, you have a very potentially very efficient rocket engine that could get you to Mars in a month or so, uh, depending on the amount of electrical power you have available. That would change the ballgame entirely. So, um, yes, with our current chemical rockets, it would take a half a year to get to Mars, and that's a long time. Uh, if you could get there much faster, then you have much less radiation exposure and you a lot less uh, life support equipment you have to take with you. It, it, it's really a game changer. I think we could do it with our current technology. It'll be a lot more expensive, though. And going to Mars, uh, people look at the price tag of such a mission. Some people, like Robert Zubrit of the Mars Society that we had on the show, have advocated perhaps sending uh, two rockets, one just loaded with rocket fuel for the return voyage. So the astronauts don't have to carry their own return rocket fuel. In some sense, they have a one-way ticket to Mars, and there's a rocket waiting for them with rocket fuel for the return voyage. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, our special guest today was Professor Jeffrey Hoffman, professor at MIT and former astronaut. It was a rebroadcast of an interview we did when the Augustine Report came out at a crucial juncture in the history of the space program. At that point, it was President Barack Obama who decided that the government funding of the space program should be shared with the private sector. And we see the culmination of that decision this weekend when four civilians went into outer space funded by a private individual. And so we're seeing the fruition of a policy set into motion by former President Barack Obama, which means eventually the democratization of outer space. Why should outer space belong to the military pilots and seasoned astronauts? Why not eventually mom and dad? Of course, it'll take time for the cost of space travel to drop to that point, but it's coming. Because think of the railroads. Think of the airplane industry. Originally, they were set up to haul freight, cargo, military troops. Now, mom and dad can ride the rails and fly on the airplane. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. Find out more about exploration on my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. We have 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. Good day.